So about 200 years before Jesus of Nazareth came into public view, there was a story that unfolded, and this story that unfolded, it ended up overshadowing uh, the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, there was a, a, an empire that ruled the day, some 200 years before Jesus of Nazareth, and that empire was the Seleucid Empire. And there was a king, a man named Antiochus Epiphanes, who ruled that empire. And what caught wind in some, in some sense was a coup of sorts in this small region, this small outpost of that Seleucid Empire called Judea. And when Antiochus Epiphanes, he heard about this coup of sorts, he kind of set his mind toward Judea. And historians don't really know why Antiochus turned toward there, but what we have in the Orthodox and the Catholic tradition is this wisdom that comes forward that, that describes what happened. Here's how history records this violent scene. When these happenings, this news of a coup, were reported to the king, he thought that Judea was in revolt. And raging like a wild animal, he set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem, which is a city in Judea, by storm. And he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants in the space of three days. 80,000 were lost, 40,000 meeting a violent death, and the same number being sold into slavery. So Antiochus functionally outlawed Jewish worship in the land. Any worship that centered around the temple was banned. Um, any markers of Jewish identity, which specifically was this practice of circumcision, uh, that was outlawed. And to add insult to injury, Antiochus goes on to uh, like erect this um, statue of Zeus as a place of an altar in, in the temple itself. And then to, to push the bounds even further, uh, pigs are then slaughtered in that space. And if you know anything about kosher law and, and what it would mean in the holiest of places for the Jewish people to have something that was unclean to be brought in, let alone slaughtered, it would mean utter defilement, utter offense. This is just the beginning of the story. You see, in the face of Antiochus's horrific violence, 80,000, 40,000 of whom meet a violent death and others are sold as property, just the objectification of, human, of humanity in that moment. Like in response to that, something boils up in this one Jewish priest named Mattathias. And Mattathias has a son whom you may know. This is Judas the Hammer, the Maccabees. So Mattathias and his sons after him, Judas and Simon, they end up basically calling a movement together to push back against the Seleucids. And they then wage war for 20 plus years, this guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Empire. And you see, this is, this is no small thing because as you'll, as you'll see in this, this map here is that after years of battle, like if you just see the Seleucid Empire is huge. If you see those... Um, those closely dashed lines, like this stretches all the way over to modern day Pakistan and then up and over into what would be modern day Turkey. So it's the whole um, kind of eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea and the Lebanon and what would be like Israel, Palestine, all down through there. That is all of the Seleucid Empire. This would be comparable 
to a power, like something like a, a force like Russia, looking at a nation like, I don't know, Ukraine, and saying, we are going to come into this place a- against all odds. This seems like, it seems insurmountable. And yet, over the course of time, what we see is that the Maccabees actually push back. That they, that they remain in the land and they actually get to the point where they can then rededicate the, the temple and in turn rededicate the land to their God, Yahweh. And this is not necessarily like a beautiful story. This is a story of war, which is one of loss and bloodshed and death. This is a horrific story. But this, this story itself, this Maccabean revolt, it actually gives way to celebration. And here's what I mean. This is another work cataloging this revolt. This is what we read. The Jews entered it, that is Jerusalem, with praise and palm branches. Just let that settle in. Enter Jerusalem with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments. They have the whole band, hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. This is the response like, do, do you hear what's in the air? You just heard it a moment ago. There's this, this is the sound of a procession of praise. This is the sound of military conquest. At long last, the oppressed are liberated. They're back in the land. They're free until they're not. Because as what generally happens is um, another power rises up. And that power is called Rome. And Rome comes in and takes what was once taken by force even more forcefully. They end up throwing off all of those powers. And now a new procession of praise fills the air. This is the story that overshadows Jesus of Nazareth. So if you fast forward those 200 years and you're there in the first century and you're in Israel, Palestine, you're in the Galilee, this is what's in the air for Jesus. It's a, it's a people who long to be liberated from oppression. It's a people who have essentially only known a taste of that, memories, if you will, of what that could be like to be a part of a procession of praise that was not one of being defeated. You see, that's there where Jesus, in that place of like hunger for liberation and hope for someone to be able to drive out Rome, this is where we land at Palm Sunday. It's a different type of scene. Uh, like one of the first Palm Sundays I ever attended um, was in this mega church. Um, and, you know, thousands of people, it means hundreds of children are coming in waving palm branches. And it was like this raucous scene. Pa- parents are like, this is back in the day when cameras, you know, like you had no camera on your phone. So it's like you're snapping pictures and there's flashes everywhere. And it's this, it's almost this pageantry of sort. But it, but it, was, it was this beautiful scene. Songs of Hosanna being sung. This is a little different of a scene that we're going to describe today. See, because without any flair or panache, Jesus of Nazareth kind of comes on the scene. You think 30 years of relative obscurity, and then he goes to like, I don't know, the middle of the sticks in the northern part of Israel called the Galilee, and he starts saying some things. He starts kind of uh, 
weaving this web of words about this new kingdom with a new king. It's called the kingdom of heavens. And it has this upside down way of relating to people because those who are on the margins are actually going to come in, but they're not going to kill their enemies. They're actually going to love them. They're going to pray for them. They're going to contend for them. This is a different type of king with a different type of hope because there's a different way to be human is what Jesus is saying. And this is what actually brings us to our teaching text for this Palm Sunday. That was all introduction, by the way. (laughs) So this is what we read. You can stay seated for this. This is Matthew 21, 1 to 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, if anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. This is the prophet Zechariah. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt to the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Did you hear it? Did you hear the sounds? Did you hear that procession of praise? When we were in this room, it just sounded like, like the wind blowing through trees, but it had a different sound in that scene. It sounded like, Hosanna to the son of David. These are the sounds of liberation that are in the air but it's also the sounds of upheaval on the ground. And these are the two things that I I want us to kind of uh, turn our attention to this Palm Sunday is the sounds of liberation in the air and the sounds of upheaval on the ground. So a brief word on both. Let's just talk about upheaval. I I don't know what necessarily comes to your mind when you think about upheaval. My mind like flashes through news cycles of conflict and war, which is actually fitting for the scene that we're in. You see, but for us to to think about upheaval and situate ourselves here in the passage that we're in, let's just let's just go to verse eight. Turn your attention back there. Um, What is the crowd up to? Like, let's just get some facts on the ground. Christy, who's just up here leading us, like, she'll say, uh, uh, this is a just the facts, ma'am, kind of a moment. Like, so what are the facts on the ground? What are the crowds doing? This is where you can then look at verse 8, and you can say what the crowds are doing to me, and we can know that we're alive here this Palm Sunday. So so what are the crowds doing? Yes, I heard the things. There's, There's... there's branches going on the ground. What are the other things that are, that, that are, the cloaks, there we are, folks. So just by a show of hands, how many of you in a fit of joy, a moment of celebration, just decided to tear off your cloak, you know, not your tunic, but your cloak, and throw it on the ground? Anyone? 
recently? Yeah, Braden just went for it right there. Thank you. Um, no, see, this is, this is silly because we would go, this is ridiculous. Why would, you, why would you throw your cloak on the ground and then why would you go to the nearest sh- tree or shrubbery and start pruning it to then also, th- this is an odd scene. And, and yet, it, can you hear it? Can you, can you hear what is happening? This is a procession of praise, and yet it's a peculiar procession of praise. You see, in, in other historical works that catalog the, the, the Hebrew people, there's this section, you might just know it as kings, <laughs> one and two kings. And in, in the second little collection, what we encounter is this scene when a prophet of God is sent to a warrior named Jehu. And there Jehu is with his other officers or commanders. And this is in 2 Kings 9 where we encounter this scene where a prophet of God goes to Jehu and says, he's commissioned to anoint Jehu as the king of Israel. And so he finds Jehu, I'm, I'm like in my imagination, he's at like a roadside pub. And so there's Jehu and he's just there with his officers and he pulls him aside into this little private area and he, he essentially anoints him. And anytime you hear about an anointing, this is a, a unique moment where someone is, is set apart as distinct, as holy, as unique to a moment. And so the prophet of God anoints Jehu, this warrior, to be the king over Israel. And in that moment, he then leaves. Like the prophet runs away, and Jehu comes back out and is asked by the other officers who are there, like, um, what, what just happened? And Jehu says, well, you know that guy. He's kind of crazy. And they're like, no, seriously, what happened? And this, this is what Jehu says. Here's what he told me. This is what Yahweh says. This is what the Lord says. I anoint you king over Israel. And they quickly took their cloaks and they spread them under him on bare steps. And they blew their trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. See, in that moment, what Jehu didn't recognize, those who were with him did. And that is that the anointing, the reality of his life had shifted and their response had to match it. And the response is for them to essentially say, we are with you. To lay down the cloaks is to recognize that this one is king. And with that in mind, just come, come back with me to this scene on the Mount of Olives. I myself have never been. I'm thankful for people who can take pictures um, and, and granular though this may be, imagine that you are on this space. You're, you're in this place. This is, this is a, a mountain. And right as it goes down below is the Kidron Valley. Do you see that golden dome? That's the dome of the rock today. But what would have been there before would be the Temple Mount. It's said that you would have seen the, the glistening of the temple from miles away. That it's this beautiful scene. And so what you can't quite see is how, how drastic the decline is and how steep the grade is back up to the Temple Mount. But right here in this moment, this is where we meet Jesus. It's, it's here where Jesus is surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of pilgrims because what we encounter on Palm Sunday is the movement of people to Jerusalem. Anytime there's a pilgrimage for one of these high holy days, you'll encounter, and especially on Passover, the city of Jerusalem that usually has about 30,000 people balloons up to like 180,000 people. So these people from the north are coming down, and Jesus is surrounded by hundreds of them. And then in that, in that space, Jesus stops, and he sends two of his apprentices ahead of him to go and get a donkey. And not just a donkey, but like a baby donkey. <laughs> he says, bring it here. 
and something's going to happen. And so you have to picture this, this moment, like, what is Passover? Pa- Passover is the collective reenactment of the people of Israel, God liberating their people. This is, this is Passover, the place where death gives way to life. And so there, amid the mood of like death giving way to life, Jesus stops, surrounded by people, and then he mounts up on a donkey. Picture a grown man like crushing a baby donkey. This is not an impressive scene unless something comes to mind. And Matthew helps us to see this. This is in verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. See, to mount the donkey is to confirm the suspicion that's been surrounding Jesus that yes, indeed, he is the one who is God's anointed. This is the one who's going to establish the way and rule of God for sure. And all the stuff that they've just seen, they've seen the blind receive sight. They have seen those who are ill healed. They've seen those who are on the margins brought to the center. And surely now Jesus is the one who we thought he would be. He's the humble king. And so what do they do? Well, they spread their cloaks under him. See, this upheaval is on the ground. But that's not all, is it? Like, what's, what's on the ground around us right now? These are the palm branches. What do we make of these palm branches? If the cloaks recognize that Jesus is king, the palms tell us what kind of king the people want. The, the palms actually are this like cry from the heart of the people that Jesus would be the one who would liberate them. Where did we hear the palm branches before? We heard the palm branches being laid down as the Maccabeans had finally established themselves through violence and oppressing the oppressors. Which, like, my reflex, like, in my gut is, like, that is where praise belongs. But Jesus says a different song can come out. See, the branches, they tell us that the crowds have something in mind for Jesus. Because the crowds know that they're not strong enough. They're not wealthy enough. They are not connected enough to push back against the force and the power that is Rome. But what they see in Jesus is one who actually might be able to do it. They see in Jesus a hope. And as if with like a wink and a nod, they say, Jesus, if you see us, we see you, and they lay down their branches. And this, is, this isn't in, in my notes, so this means we're going to go a little bit longer, but just as an aside, like, we have something to learn from the crowds here. See, the, the crowds actually say, we don't have what it takes, but Jesus, you, you do. They lay down their branches. Like, what, what is a what does it mean for us to lay down a branch? Perhaps what are the branches that you yourself would lay down? Like what could we learn from these crowds who are able to see this is what I cannot do, but Jesus actually can. I think about how easy it is, like in in a job interview, we're in the season of like what the great resignation and so many people are entering back into spaces. What do you do in a job interview, but you make yourself look better than you are? What if you were just honest in those moments? <laughs> you know, they say, uh, so tell me about your weaknesses. Well, um, you know, generally I show, on, I show up late. Um, I'm not a self-starter. That's not me. I'm not task or I enjoy the process. So if we don't really finish the goal, that's fine. I'm sure somebody will care for that. Um, 
if you, if you give me criticism, I'll, I'm probably going to take it personally, and um, I'll complain about it to my colleagues. I'll be a little toxic about three weeks out of the month. But otherwise, I can, I can do the stuff. Like, what if we were just honest with what we had? We probably won't get the job. <laughs> you see, there's this, this act that the crowds do. They lay down their branches. They say, this is, this is what we do not have. But what we do have is we say, Jesus, if you see us, if you see us, we're with you. But notice that there's some contingencies there. If you see us, we are with you as long as you are this. It's almost as though we get this intuitively because it's so easy to pray, Jesus, I will go here if. Jesus, um, I really need this thing, and I would be great if it just happened by Tuesday. And I think that God honors our requests. I think he honors our desperate pleas. I, I, I actually think that 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 the more that we commune with God is actually the gift in and of itself. And yet there's something when we want Jesus to be something that he's not, that then begins to distort our vision of him. See, the branches tell us what type of king these people wanted. They wanted a king in a Maccabean mold. And Jesus, he heard loud and clear that as every branch hit the ground, he heard the sounds of upheaval riving up. They were rising up in the air. And I don't know if you, if you hear that in this scene, but perhaps you might for the first time today. As each branch hits the ground, those Maccabean hopes, they make themselves heard. Upheaval is, in, is on the ground, but to punctuate these symbolic acts, then we actually hear that liberation is in the air. This, this is the song that comes out. <laughs> Hosanna! To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And maybe to your ears and to mine that in this season of spring and palm branches and all the pastel colors, these words are soft. But these words are anything but that. See, these, these words are themselves like a battle cry coming out from the crowds. See, these words come from Psalm 118. And if you know anything about Psalm 118, the line that goes above it, like, because this is what the editors of the Bible do, they, they put lines in there that aren't actually in the Bible, but they want to they help you see maybe a theme that's there. And the line that's above Psalm 118 is the steadfast love, or the, the steadfast love of the Lord endures. Like, that little line is, is meant to capture your imagination. But what's also in Psalm 118, on repeat, is this line, In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. Who? What? This is a song that is sung after a people are returning from military conquest. Do you think the people who sing this song know its origins? Yes. They know this song. This is, I was trying to think of a relevant illustration, couldn't think of one, so here's my try at it. But it's, um, it's like, a, like a UFC fighter coming out with their fights. Like, it's like, like their pump-up music. They, they know. Like, and each, each person has one that kind of matches their temperament, but each of it, like I imagine these songs, it kind of says, like, don't mess with me. But each of them, I don't know, it's silly at some level. But it's intense, like, have you ever, have, has anybody watched any of these moments? Fighters walking out? Okay, just me right now. Um, it, thank you, Ben. Um, it will like, I'll feel like the little goosebumps come up. Like there's something electric about that moment. And it's just mediated through a screen. And I'm like, oh, 
oh, it's going to be on. And like something in my, it just rises up. And I think that that's what's happening in the crowds. They're singing this song. There's this militaristic fervor in the air. Where does Jesus go? Jesus goes straight to Jerusalem. Because the branches, they expose the crowd's desire for a conquering king. And as the Maccabeans rise up in the air, they're literally saying, or excuse me, as the Hosannas rise up in the air, they're literally saying, save us, save us now. See, Hosanna is not so much a word of praise as it is a call for Jesus to save them. It's a call to action. So there is a new procession of praise, but it's not necessarily what the people want. See, what if the way forward is not the praise of a conquering king, but the laments of a crucified Messiah? What if, remember, this is the gospel according to Matthew, what if Jesus has a vision of what it means to be human again and it consists of allowing the barbs of your enemies to go inside of you so that they might go no further? What if Jesus is not here to conquer but rather to allow himself to be conquered? Well, just listen to how the scene unfolds because that is actually good news. Picking up in Matthew 21, 12, this is what we read. Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling. Yes, this is the same scene. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of the house of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is Jesus essentially announcing that there is a transnational move of God that you are disrupting in this space. You are here in, this, in the court of the Gentiles pushing them out. But it's not necessarily about the exchange of money because that would have to happen. But what is it about? We see in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and listen to this, the children singing in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. There's a new song that starts to come forth after verse 14. And Jesus asks this, do you hear what the children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. But have you never read, quoting from Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? In other words, it's like the religious leaders are like, are you going to let this stand? In other gospels, what you'll see in the gospel according to Luke is that the Pharisees are with Jesus and they'll say, rebuke your disciples. Like actually put them down because don't you know that Rome has people who are listening? Don't you know what these words could do to us? Rebuke them. Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes. The Lord will call forth praise from whom? From children and infants. Why do we have children wave the palm branches and sing Hosanna to the God? Like, why, why do we have them do that? Because something about children singing this song has a sincerity of faith. And, and what type of faith does Jesus invite us to? To the faith of a child. The faith that is not obstructed by the demands of the world or consumption or patterns of living or stories that tell us this is what it means to be fulfilled, but in the end it leaves us empty and lifeless. No, there is a new song that can come out. And in verse 17, Jesus leaves them with the song of children lingering in the ears, and he leaves the city. And I, as we close, I love how theologian and writer Henry Nouwen, he helps us arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus. Just let this sink in. Let, like, 
Let the contrast of songs, the, the songs of people who want a Maccabean king and the songs of children who see Jesus, who can release them, let this contrast stand. Jesus went to Jerusalem to put people in a situation where they had to say yes or no. This is the great drama of Jesus' passion. He had to wait for their response. What would they do, betray him or follow him? In a way, his agony is not simply the agony of approaching death. It is also the agony of being out of control and having to wait. It is the agony of a God who depends on us to decide how to live out the divine presence among us. What song will we sing? See, it is the agony of the God who, in a very mysterious way, allows us to decide how God will be God. He, here we glimpse the mystery of God's incarnation. God became human not only to act among us, but also to be the recipient of our responses. And that is the mystery of Jesus' love. Jesus, in his passion, is the one who waits for our response. What song will we sing? See, precisely in that waiting, the intensity of his love and God's is revealed to us. See, the thing that captured my imagination is that Jesus is not compelled. He is not wooed by the crowd's song. Think, think of what Jesus did over the course of these past three years. Think of what Jesus has done in your life this past year. Jesus gave a glimpse of a coming king. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heavens is at hand. Turn around. And the people think they see something in Jesus that will give way to life. But he does not yield to their voice. No, he heads to a place. And do you notice the only song that Jesus calls praise is the song of the children? So it's important to know that that in this scene, Jesus wasn't cleansing the temple as we normally think. Maybe that sounds odd, but what is Jesus doing? He's shutting down the temple. This would be a whole other teaching, but I'll just um, do it here in like, I don't know, 30 seconds. Um, Jesus is doing what? He's pushing out those who are selling doves. He's pushing out the money changers. Why? Because this is a judgment, not on the money changers. This is a judgment on the temple authorities. This is, this is essentially, Jesus is enacting this judgment on the temple apparatus that this place, which is where heaven and earth were supposed to meet, where people ought to have encountered the presence of the living God, not just a territorial God who oversees Jerusalem and Judea, but the creator God, that people could encounter freedom and mercy in this place. They've actually been obstructed from that reality. And so Jesus announces judgment on that place and he pushes out those people who are obstructing mercy. And what is that? Well, that is in essence Jesus saying, there is a new way to meet the living God through me. Jesus is establishing himself in that scene as the temple, as the one who will mediate the presence of the living God to humanity. This is a beautiful scene. And what could this mean? Well, look again at verse 14. Seriously, go here with me. It's here that Jesus heals the blind, heals the lame, and calls the songs of children praise. 
See, immediately we notice the contrast that there's a different type of song that Jesus receives. There's a different type of movement of Jesus' presence. It is truly about this liberation that leads to life. And I think the crowds wanted Jesus to come in and, well, basically start a revolt. But instead, Jesus goes into the temple and he goes and passes judgment there. See, Palm Sunday actually invites Jesus. It's like Jesus comes into this space to say, where is the mercy? And he comes into this space not not solely for condemnation, but to remind us that we live in the wake of him pouring out mercy. And how does he do it? Well, that's what we see this forthcoming week. See, Palm Sunday doesn't just give way to more hype on Easter Sunday. We actually pass through Good Friday to get to the cross because there is no resurrection apart from crucifixion. This is what we have as the, as the community of Jesus is to know that there is indeed a song of Hosanna. We, we have a song of Hosanna to sing. The whole of the Christian life is essentially singing Hosanna, save us now. But there's a different way. There's two ways really to sing it. We can sing it like children of faith or we can sing it like the crowds who want a conquering king. The, la- the latter will say, kill my enemies so I can advance. The former will say, I'm with you. Like, I actually will go where you will go. I will take up my cross and follow you. This is Palm Sunday. (laughs) This is a place where we get to remember that Jesus has done something that is upside down and backwards. Jesus did not come to conquer his enemies, but allow his enemies to conquer him.